Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 through 21. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, "'Let me not look on the death of the child.'" And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, there is a song that we sing regularly here at Grace Church, and it, the song title is All I Have is Christ. It is a song that is probably familiar to many of you. In fact, the chorus of the song is repetitive and says, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. And when we sing that song, it is often with an upbeat tempo. It is usually a song that rouses our spirits, and we sing it passionately and heartily whenever it comes through, uh, to us on Sunday morning. And yet I wonder 
how many of us share this experience that when we leave church on Sunday, having sung, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life, that when we get to Monday morning, or when the drudgery and the struggle of our weeks seem to settle in, do we find ourselves still singing this hymn? Do we find ourselves saying, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Or do we find ourselves questioning, maybe not out loud, but deep in our hearts, do I really believe this? Or do we find ourselves, as A.W. Tozer once wrote, habitually standing in our now, looking back by faith to see that the past has been filled with God, looking forward to see God inhabiting our future, but in our now, uninhabited, except for ourselves. He says we are guilty in that moment of a kind of temporary atheism, which leaves us alone in the universe, while for the time, God is not. He says we talk about God much and we talk about him loudly, but secretly, on Monday morning, do we perceive him to actually be absent? We see this struggle in our passage this morning, a struggle that I know I have faced, and I'm pretty sure you have as well at some point. So whether in our successes or in our suffering, whether we are a new believer or we've been walking with the Lord for years, all of us in these moments are tempted to place our hope in our ambitions and in our achievements and to live as if God doesn't exist. In fact, I would argue that it's precisely in those moments when we live as if God doesn't exist that our temptation to place our hope in our ambitions and in our achievements is the most intense. We see this in the life of Abraham, and it's wonderful to see that in this passage, despite all of our fears that we might be alone, that this passage in the gospel declares to us that by God's grace, he is with us. And it's because God is with us that we can, in fact, we must live not enslaved to our ambitions or to our achievements, but we must live by faith alone. And what we see in this passage this morning is a description, as it were, a story of what it looks like to struggle but to live by faith alone. And so before we dive into this passage and explore what this means for us today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning as your people to hear your word to us. We thank you for the life of Abraham and all of its imperfections. We thank you that we can identify him in this way, so that as we see your grace in his life and how your grace points to the fulfillment of all your promises in Christ, that like Abraham, we might see that you are truly with us, that we can live by faith alone, because you have and you will fulfill your promises to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So our passage this morning explores this idea. What does it actually look like to live by faith alone? 
And to live by faith alone, our passage begins by saying that living by faith alone looks like rejoicing in God's faithfulness, not our achievements. If you notice in those first sections there, verses one through seven, how God had fulfilled his promise to Sarah and his promise to Abraham. In verse one, it says, the Lord visited Sarah, or in the NIV, the Lord showed grace to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. It's said so frankly here in the text, and yet we might forget how much longing preceded this fulfillment, right? Because for us, the promise of Isaac was given six chapters away, right? Maybe just a couple of months of sermons ago, we heard this promise of Isaac. But for Abraham and for Sarah, it had been 25 years, 25 years of waiting, 25 years of God continuing to reaffirm that promise, 25 years of struggling, as we know Sarah did, with cynicism, with discouragement, and with doubt. And yet God here in this passage, right at the get-go, is showing himself to be faithful to his promise. And I want you to notice here how in this passage, the focus is not on the achievement of Sarah and Abraham, but on how God has been faithful to his promise. Notice in verse 1 and in verse 2, the emphasis here that the Lord visited Sarah and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. That Sarah conceived and bore Abraham at the time that God had spoken to him. And in verse 6, Sarah recognizes this. She says, God has made laughter. And in Hebrew, the word laughter is the same root of the name Isaac. God has made laughter for me, Isaac. Everyone who hears will laugh, Isaac, over me. Sarah is completely overwhelmed with joy not because she has achieved anything, but because God has been faithful to his promise to her, and his faithfulness has been profound. I want you again to notice how Isaac's birth is constantly in this passage being directly connected to God's work, to God's miraculous and gracious work toward Abraham and toward Sarah. It's interesting how in Genesis chapter 18, there when Sarah laughs in a cynical way, God looks at her and says, Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? And God has demonstrated that his faithfulness is so profound that he will prove himself right. Nothing is too hard for him. And the reality of that has led Sarah to laugh out loud in joy of God's faithfulness to her and to Abraham. But God's faithfulness is not just profound toward Abraham and toward Sarah. It is also extremely personal. I want you to notice again in these verses how often God's personal faithfulness is expressed. It says, the Lord visited Sarah. The Lord did to Sarah. 
the Lord spoke to Abraham. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac as God had commanded him. Do you notice how personal God's faithfulness is? I don't think that we appreciate this enough because oftentimes when we come to the character traits of God, right? We think of God's sovereignty, we think of God's mercy or God's justice or God's faithfulness. And what we tend to do is we tend to take that term and we put it in a theological or a philosophical category. And we say, this is what God is like. We do kind of a description of God's features or attributes. And we come to him in this very academic sense. The problem with that is that it betrays, if that's the only way that we understand this, the primary way the Bible expresses God's attributes. There are incommunicable attributes of God, meaning these are things about God that are not true of us as his creatures. But his communicable attributes, his faithfulness, his love, his mercy, these are things that are not primarily theological or philosophical. They are relational. Joy does not come in our lives through simply having theological knowledge of God. Knowledge that is divorced from this relational component. Because God is not some impersonal force that worked in the lives of Abraham and in Sarah. Some impersonal force that if you just tap into, your life will go well. God is a person. A person who can be and who wants to be known. He wants to be loved. And he wants to be trusted. God's faithfulness to Abraham and to Sarah has been profound and deeply personal. And a person that I think in church history that also understood this at a deep level was a man by the name of George Mueller. Some of you may be familiar with George Mueller. His autobiography is relatively famous in Christian history. And the reason that it's so famous is because George Mueller structured his ministry in some pretty, what would probably be deemed in many circles, very irresponsibly. Here's how George Mueller started an orphanage in Bristol, England in the 19th century. His ministry plan was pray and praise. George Mueller made a a habit of gathering the children of Bristol, England, those that were orphans, and caring for them and providing them education and food and opportunities and care. And yet he never asked a single person for any donations. He said, God will provide. Let me go to my prayer closet and I'll pray that God will provide. And there's this very famous story, one that you may be familiar with, where 300 kids come downstairs ready for school, and the mother of the, of the orphanage says to George, George, there's no food. I went to the pantry this morning, and there's nothing to give these kids. And George says, well, go have them sit down, and we will wait to see how the Lord provides. So he goes into the dining hall, 300 children, and he prays. And he gives thanks to God for how he has provided and how he will provide. And right when he is done praying, the autobiography says, there was a knock at the door and a baker said, George, I'm sorry to disrupt you this morning. I'm sure you have a lot to do. I could not sleep last night. I knew at some way that you needed bread. And so I baked you a bunch. Here you go. 
what? And then there's another knock at the door, and a milkman is standing there saying, I'm, I'm so sorry to bother you, sir. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot going on this morning. My milk truck just broke down in front of your orphanage, and there's a ton of milk here that needs to be delivered, but by the time the wheels are fixed on this thing, it's all going to be spoiled. So can I, can I just give it to you for free? I'm sure that the, you, know, you can use it in some way. And George says, yes, of course. Thank you. They bring in the milk. They bring in the bread, and God provided for all those kids that day. Now, What's hilarious about the autobiography of George Mueller is that that's one of many stories where George Mueller doesn't do anything to fundraise. He goes for a walk, and some guy's like, oh, my goodness, I forgot to donate to you this month. Here's 100 pounds. Like, what is going on in George Mueller's life? Multiple times, Mueller was asked to speak at effectively conferences, and people are interviewing him, and they're saying, hey, tell us another story about how God provided. And every time he's reflecting on this, his, his biography says this, George would respond, reflecting on these profound and personal examples of the Lord's faithfulness, and he would say, isn't that just like my gracious heavenly father? George Mueller knew that the faithfulness of God was profound But more importantly, George Mueller knew that this profound faithfulness of God was personal. That God was not some abstract genie in the sky. That he really does care for his people where they are. Rejoicing in God's faithfulness to George Mueller, to Abraham, to Sarah, was not about rejoicing in their achievements or in their ambitions, that joy came from them simply rejoicing in their God who had proven himself to be faithful. But living by faith doesn't simply just mean rejoicing in God's faithfulness. It also means being willing to listen to God's rebuke. I want you to go to verses 8 through 12. And there we read that the child, Isaac, grew and was weaned, Abraham made a great feast on that day when Isaac was weaned, meaning that this child demonstrated that he was going to survive. And so they put on this great feast. And it says, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, Ishmael is his name, saw Ishmael laughing. And so she goes to Abraham and she says, you need to get rid of this slave woman. You need to get rid of this son because this son will not be an heir alongside Isaac. Now, It makes sense to me why the next statement says, this thing was very displeasing to Abraham. Not only had this wonderful party that they had planned all of a sudden become super awkward, but now Abraham needs to face this rebuke, a rebuke that is exposing the idolatry of his heart, of where Abraham is trying to hide his hope in his achievements, and in his ambitions. And what is perhaps the most disturbing question that we could ask of this passage is why does God side with Sarah? Do you notice that? If you go to this passage, it says, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. God sided with Sarah 
in asking Abraham to do what, for all intents and purposes, is asking Abraham to not just simply disinherit Ishmael, which in ancient Near Eastern culture was, in a sense, against the law. Not only was God saying disinherit, according to Sarah's wisdom, but get them out of the camp. Go send them off into the wilderness, which is effectively saying, let them die. These are hard words. This is a very disturbing thing for Sarah to say, and it's a very disturbing thing for us to wrestle with. Why would God say such a hard sentence? The reason that God is willing to say this hard sentence is because God cares deeply about the hearts of his people. He cares about the state of Abraham's heart because our idols are in conflict with God's promises in our lives. I want you to notice what it says here about Ishmael. It says in verse 9 that what Sarah saw was a boy, Ishmael would have been about 17 at this point in the story, laughing. Now, in the narrative, it's supposed to be a play on words, right? Isaac, laughter in, the, in verses 1 through 7, and now we have this party going on, and we have Ishmael laughing, Isaac, right? But the Hebrew word here that's being used for Ishmael's laughter is not one of joy, not one of jubilee. It's one of mocking, and it's a laughter of scorn. Try to put yourself in Ishmael's shoes. He's 17. He's got a lot going for him. It says later he became an expert with the bow. So clearly he's got a level of athleticism. He survived to the age of 17, so he's clearly strong. He's been living with Sarah and Abraham this whole time. They have not had a child. And so Ishmael is saying, listen, I, I know God's promised you a baby and whatever, but come on, like, I'm going to be the heir. I am Abraham's son. They had me. I know it was with Hagar, but, but I am Abraham's son. I deserve this inheritance. Ishmael has no intention of giving up his birthright. And that means Ishmael is offended by Isaac. Isaac comes on the scene. He's now weaned, demonstrating that Isaac's going to be sticking around for a little bit. And Ishmael says, I'm not having any of this. I'm going to mock. I'm going to scorn. Not Isaac, though it is that, but God's promises. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 actually riffs on this story. And he says the reason that this is happening, the persecution of the church by the Jews, is because of what's going on between Ishmael and Isaac. I'll read Galatians 4 here, and you can pick up on how Paul wants us to understand what's going on here. Paul says, now this thing might be interpreted allegorically. These women, Hagar and Sarah, are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem, that is Judaism in the first century. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? 
Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. I want you to mark this. The reason that there was conflict between the Jews in the first century and the Christians is because of the exact same type of conflict we see between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is banking everything on his ambitions and his achievements. And the Jews in the first century trying to keep the law perfectly are banking everything on their achievements and their ambitions. And the gospel comes in and says salvation and God's grace alone come through faith. What? What do you mean? I've been waiting around, Ishmael, right, for 17 years. You're telling me that all that ambition and all that achievement is for nothing? And God says, if your hope is in your ambitions and in your achievements, they will always come in conflict with my promises for you. It's not just true of why the first century was persecuted by the Jews. It's also why you and I experience conflict in our own hearts. Later in Galatians, Paul will say that the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. That war is because there is a conflict in our hearts between wanting to identify ourselves and root ourselves in our ambitions and our achievements and the Spirit of God moving in our hearts to say, no, it is by faith alone that we live. Faith in God's promises. Not only was Ishmael persecuting Isaac, as we see in Galatians 4, but we also see that our idols ultimately are not just in conflict, but they are incompatible with God's promises for us. I want you to notice here in verse 10 that the statement God says to Abraham, the statement that Sarah says to Abraham is not, hey, can you just make sure Ishmael and Isaac get along? Can we just have some peace in this house and kind of recognize that Isaac's going to be the heir and Ishmael can stick around and, you know, get a little bit of the inheritance? Can we just make some peace? Right? Isaac and Ishmael, incompatible. Cast out the slave woman with her son. God is chiefly concerned with our hearts. He will not allow any idol to remain in our hearts. Perhaps a person who felt the sting of this the most was the rich young ruler, the rich young man that we read about in Mark 10. You remember this story, right? Jesus is setting out on a journey. Young man runs up to him, kneels down and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, be sure to honor your father and your mother. The man's response, teacher, All these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at that young man. Mark 10 says he loved that young man. And then he says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come and follow me. And here's the most heartbreaking line in that story. Disheartened by the saying, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Following Christ and holding on to his ambitions and his achievements were incompatible. And we look at this man and we say, how could you do that? You were looking at Jesus. You were looking at the one who could give you eternal life. And this goes to show how important it is for us to understand idolatry in our hearts, putting our hope in our achievements and in our ambitions is not about our intellect. It is about our loves, our desires, our wants, our worships. Are we worshiping our achievements, glorifying them? Are we elevating our ambitions in our lives? Where is the Lord rebuking you? What is God telling you needs to be cast out of your life, cast out of your heart? It is, a, is it a sin, a besetting sin that you just can't seem to give up? Is it an ambition that seems to completely define your life? Is it an achievement that you would never let go of? Where is God issuing his rebuke to you? Because living by faith alone means not just rejoicing in God's faithfulness, but being willing to listen to God's rebuke. And I think that the reason we see here in the passage Abraham's displeasure is how it's translated. I think a better way to translate that is Abraham was disturbed by what God was asking him to do. God's not done disturbing Abraham. We'll do that in a couple weeks. The reason that Abraham was so disturbed wasn't simply because he loved Ishmael. I think he did. And it wasn't simply because Abraham want, like, wanted to avoid God's promises. We see he's throwing a party to celebrate God's faithfulness. I think Abraham, like us, fears what it would mean if we let go of those ambitions and those achievements. What if we were to actually do that? actually to give up that sin, actually renounce our identity in that area of our life, actually not be defined by our ambitions, what would that mean? Who would I be? Would I be okay? You sense that in Abraham, and I know that we sense that in our own hearts. But the last thing that Abraham learns in this passage, in a way that I think might surprise us, is that living by faith does not mean running into the fog and uncertainty of faith. It means resting in the clear and certain promises of God. I want you to notice here in verses 12 through 14 where the story goes. God says to Abraham, don't be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, that is, cast them out into the wilderness, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then verse 13, 
And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. When we think of God's promises to us, we tend to think of them abstractly, maybe not abstractly, we tend to think of them vaguely, right? We tend to say things like, okay, God has promised to do good to me. God will promise to take care of me. And the problem with these vague generalities and these cliches is that because they are not scripture, they are not clear. But God's word and God's promises to us are crystal clear. Listen to what God has said to Abraham. He says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman. He has given Abraham not vague generalities, some Christian cliche. He has given him a clear promise. We also have been given not vague generalities, clear promises in Christ. I want to read just a few of them to you. These are just passages of Scripture. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously with, to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? God's promises to Abraham are crystal clear. God's promises to us in Christ are also crystal clear. The problem isn't how God has given us his promises. The problem is, is that we don't know what they are. And it creates in us an uncertainty and a fog. But living by faith in God's word alone, man, that's as clear as day. It's not just clear as day, it's as certain as creation. I want to show you guys this. In Genesis 1, when God created everything, how did he do it? By his word, right? He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the expanse create the sky, and it happened. God's word creates reality. And Abraham has just seen that happen with the birth of his son, Isaac. He's 100 years old. His wife is 91. In the Hebrews, it says they were as good as dead. God created something out of nothing in fulfillment of his promises. 
God's promises are not just clear, they are certain. And knowing this, not just in the creation account, not just in the birth of Isaac, not just in the coming of Christ, I want you to take that level of certainty and I want you to make sense of what Abraham does next. So Abraham rose early in the morning, this is verse 14, took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. What? Effectively, he gave the lady a piece of bread and a water bottle and said, go out into the desert. Now, from a worldly perspective, from simply looking at this from, you know, how much sense does this make? That's a suicide mission. He is sending his son and Hagar to die. But Abraham doesn't see it that way. Commentators try to figure out, okay, well, Sarah seems to be acting really cruel. Abraham seems to be displeased, but ultimately he does something that's in fact pretty cruel. Right? How are we supposed to make sense of this? And I don't think that they're right. I think Abraham woke up early because he recognized that he needed to get going on this promise because it was certain that everything was going to work out fine. Everything was going to work out fine for Isaac. Everything was going to work out fine for Ishmael as well. Now, this isn't about Ishmael's spiritual state. Again, remember, God's promise to Abraham about Ishmael is crystal clear. I will make a nation out of this boy. What does that mean? Somehow the boy's going to survive the desert. And a nation is going to come from him. Somehow I'm going to give this guy a water bottle and a piece of bread and it's going to be enough. Because God's going to provide. I've seen that with Isaac and I will see that with Ishmael. And what's really great about seeing the certainty of God's promise in this passage before we get to the hard part or what people see as the hard part is it totally transforms the way you read this next section. I mean, go back and if you look at verses 14 through 21, you've got the water in the skin running out. You've got Hagar putting her son under a bush, going to the opposite side of, says a bow shot away, like 80 yards or so and saying, I don't want to look on the death of this child. And so she sat, and she lifted up her voice, and she wept. And it doesn't change the reality of the intensity of her situation. Then it just says, as a matter of fact, that God heard the voice of the boy and asked Hagar, what, what's the matter? What troubles you? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then it says in verse 19, as matter-of-factly as it says, the Lord visited Sarah and did to her as he had said, it says, then the Lord opened Hagar's eyes and she saw a well of water. When we are not well-versed in God's clear and certain promises, it's like we are living blind. It's not that the well was created by God. It's that she didn't see it until God demonstrated his faithfulness to his promises. 
So what does this mean? Well, I think it's important for us to wrestle with this reality. Certainty and clarity in our lives does not come from rooting ourselves and placing our hope in our ambitions or our achievements. You want to go to that grad school. You want to be done with school at this certain time. You want a child. You want this marriage. You want this promotion. Whatever you want. It's not going to provide you any certainty or any clarity. It's not meant to. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then earlier, the Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for us in heaven. Ultimately, living by faith means believing in Emmanuel, God with us. Next week, when we dive into Genesis 21, verse 22, you can look there right now if you want to get a sneak peek. Look what Abimelech says to Abraham after this whole ordeal. It says, at that time, Abimelech said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. This story that happens right before it is not just when God proved that again to Abraham, but it's when Abraham learned it in a deeper way. And each time we are willing to cast out our ambitions and to cast out our achievements and to rest in God's promises, to listen to God's rebuke, to rejoice in God's faithfulness, we will learn this lesson as well. Because God's promises didn't stop with the birth of Isaac. In fact, Isaac, the promised son, is simply meant to point us forward to the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness. The birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you listen to the account of Mary, the Virgin Mary, receiving the news about Jesus, you may hear something that sounds a lot like what was said to Sarah in Genesis 18. And I'll read it here. The angel Gabriel said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary says to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And listen, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her that is called barren. 
Verse 37 in Luke 1, for nothing will be impossible with God. Christ is the ultimate testimony that God is with us. And in and through Christ, all of his promises, those clear and certain promises that you find in God's word, are yes and amen. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians. God will fulfill his promises to us as his people. And it's because that God is with us in this way that we can rejoice in his faithfulness, we can listen to his rebukes, surrender our idols, and just rest in his promises. That is what it means and what it looks like not to live by our ambitions or our achievements. That is what it looks like to live by faith alone. So that on Monday morning, when the drudgery and the struggles begin to settle in, and you begin to perceive that you're a little more blind to God's presence than you were right now, you can remember God's faithfulness to Abraham and to Sarah and his faithfulness to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we exalt you. We give you thanks and praise for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your mercy and your grace. Our achievements, our ambitions might be mildly interesting, but your glory is what should overwhelm us. And so we acknowledge that now. We thank you for not leaving us in our idolatry and our sin, but for rescuing us and giving us the power that we need by your spirit to cast out those things in our lives that are competing, conflicting, and even incompatible with your promises for us. And so, Lord, would you, by your spirit, now strengthen us so that we would rest in your promises and live by faith alone. And it's in